Greetings and welcome to the Heart Hall Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Cordova. The Heart Hall Podcast is a show dedicated to highlighting the faculty, staff, and guests of the University of California Davis's Ethnic and Gender Sexuality Studies departments housed in Heart Hall and under the Heart Interdisciplinary Programs umbrella. In this episode, I'm chatting with Chai Studies Assistant Professor Dr. Michael Singh. Dr. Singh has a PhD in Critical Studies of Race, Class, and Gender program, a Master in Social and Cultural Studies, and a Bachelor's in Ethnic Studies, all from UC Berkeley. Dr. Singh is a fairly new addition to UC Davis, whose areas of research, among other things, include urban schooling and Latino male teachers. Dr. Singh and I discuss his first faculty position during the pandemic, growing up down the road in Woodland, California, his research on Latino male mentors, and more. Now here's my conversation with Dr. Michael Singh. Um, so I'll start off with the question I've been asking everybody in this very odd time. How has the last year and change been for you in this very strange period in history we're all going through with uh, COVID and lockdown and all that good stuff? Good stuff. Yeah, uh, it's it's been an odd year, especially um, starting a, a, a faculty position, but also my first faculty position. Um, so I think the initial kind of COVID lockdown began uh, at the very end of my postdoc doctoral fellowship. So I was in Santa Barbara, kind of moving back. Uh, my partner was here in, uh, in the Bay Area. Right now, uh, we're in Oakland, California. Um, so I moved back and ended, ended my po- my postdoc uh, remote and started Davis remote, um, you know, teaching classes online. Um, it was, you know, my first class, Davis had already been teaching online for a quarter. So I got some advice from colleagues on how to do that. Um, but definitely an odd first first year to start at Davis. Um, my partner is in, in the medical field um, at UCSF Dental School, so she was actually going to clinic um, pretty much throughout everything, you know, geared up with all the masks and all that. Um, and we we live in a one bedroom apartment, so because of that, I was actually alone for most of the day, uh, all day, every day. She'd um, leave early, you know, probably like six thirty uh, to commute uh, to San Francisco and come back in the evening. So. Uh, lockdown for me was pretty solitary. Um, I was doing a lot of time, uh, I guess, prepping more than I needed to for teaching and uh, working on some writing projects that I had. Um, uh, thankfully, my family has been healthy. I, I've been healthy. Um, but yeah, a lot of alone time, um, which is different because in graduate school, I had a lot of groups and projects and you know organizations that I was a part of. Um, but started started off day was pretty uh, pretty quiet for me and i know you don't know any any other version of this but how has getting into the educational field in this time been different than what you imagined it would be like since we've got the you know, virtual that's life. a good question you know I'll, I'll tell you the difference once i started teaching in person um, <laughs> you know, it, was, it was odd that i know is uh is a faculty in the chickenex studies department's a new you know new person that i teach at uh, chai 10 which is this huge massive introduction course to chicano studies uh, you know 400 students and i knew that i would be teaching this you know in my first year because i i'd gotten my appointment i i deferred it for a year for the postdoc but I kind of got an idea, you know, what what I'd be teaching, um, and I imagined, you know, when I actually when I applied to Davis, I had I had a campus visit and they had me give a guest lecture in this introduction to to Chicano studies course, and it was wild. So you know, walk up on stage, mic up like you're giving this huge TED talk. You know, you're you're lecturing, you have these huge screens behind you, 
and it, was, it had been the first time that I had um, done that. I, I taught only small courses before. So all this year, I was, I was kind of prepping up that when I'd be teaching at Davis, I'd have this huge class, I'd be walking on stage, and it was just taught here in, uh, in my living room, in my apartment, so mostly blank boxes, um, so complete, completely different uh, than what I was uh, prepping for. So I'm excited to finally get my day to walk up on stage to a huge lecture hall and, and, give, and uh, conduct that course. I think day one in person, you should go big. I'm talking strobe lights. I mean, like get on stage, do the turn the chair around, get real with people kind of deal, like make it a spectacle. And then they'll just talk about it. For, every other day is going to be normal. But that first day, that first day in person, go hard. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I'm excited. And a lot of students, you know, knew that it was my first year. I, I, I felt like they, they were so sweet. I think they... They gave they gave the course a little bit more attention or tried to participate a little bit more because they they felt sorry for this guy who was his first courses were being online and there I was trying to be energetic and exciting just in front of my laptop, um, not in person. Uh, so you've mentioned that you're in the Bay Area now, but where did you grow up? Yeah, um, so actually, uh, I grew up not far from Davis in a town called Woodland, which I understand you're also from, so we can talk chat about that. <laughs> you, you may have heard of it. Um, but that's actually um, fairly unique for uh, a faculty member, and I, I joke that I've ruined my family's expectations of like what the academic, academic job market is like because you know there's, there's only so many universities, especially if you want a tenure-track job, uh, you have to wait until a call comes out that your research interests, you know, fit that call. Um, so when I was, you know, I, I told you know, all my family in Woodland, you know, I'm, I'm going to do this national job search. You know, I'm applying to jobs in New York, in Wisconsin. I had a job offer um, at Texas A&M in College Station, Texas, kind of rural Texas. And I was, you know, interested in going wherever I, I got a good offer. And at the end of the, the season, uh, Davis uh, had this uh, job that was just the perfect fit for me. And I said, oh, of course I'm going to apply. And lo and behold, I, I got it. And, you know, any family that I told be ready for me to move to New York or, you know, uh, Philadelphia, they said, well, what do you know? You ended up 10 miles down the 113 in Davis. I, I told you if you just applied to Davis, you'd get a job there. <laughs> so it, <laughs> I guess, uh, yeah, I, I'm here and uh, most family probably thinks you can just pick pick and choose where you live. Um, but yeah, end up in Davis and I'm, I'm very happy to be here. How has family and friends responded to you selling out to the to Woodland rival Davis? Because growing up, there was a big rivalry between the two towns. Oh, yeah, they probably, you know, I, I'm, when you're growing up in, in Woodland, you think of Davis as, you know, uh, all the professors live there, even though when you become a professor at Davis, you, you realize many, many live in Woodland. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but they think, you know, all the, all the professors live there and they ride bikes and they're so different than us, you know. Um, you know, they're fancy ag, we're more traditional ag, um, you know. Actually, when I was going to school there, and I, I hear it's changed, you know, oftentimes people would want to try to get into the Davis School District. Uh, I grew up going to Woodland Public Schools, but they were known to be better. Um, now I hear that you can actually open and enroll to Davis. Or actually, don't quote me on that. I've just heard that anecdotally. I know my research interest is in education, but I'm not positive on that. But I hear it's, it's shifting a bit. Um, but yeah, people would joke with me, oh, now you're going to be a Davis guy. Uh, although for now, I still live in Oakland in the Bay Area, so we'll see when I do move to the area, um, where I'll move to. Uh, how do you think growing up in Woodland shaped getting you to your scholarly interests as far as, you know, ethnic studies and such? 
Yeah, no, it, it's it's interesting. So I I, got, I went to Woodland Public Schools my whole life, um, and I did have you know they're a middle of the line school school district um, in a in a district that's you know I'm simplifying it, but you know probably forty percent white, forty forty percent Latinx, and a, a bit a bit of mixture in the in the middle. Um, I, I always knew that, you know, I'm one of the few Latino boys that are doing well in school. I was always the, you know, one or one of maybe one or two Latino boys who were in AP courses. Um, I got into UC Berkeley, um, you know, straight out, was majoring in ethnic studies. And after undergrad, I came back uh, to Woodland. I started working for the Yellow County Office of Ed. And actually, that's what kind of really sparked my, my research interest, which was you know, I, I was this uh, quote unquote successful example of a Latino male who went to schools, went to college. Now I'm back working, um, you know, Yellow County Office of Ed often has students that have for, for whatever reason uh, left the, this district and is kind of having this different educational option, um, sometimes uh, continuation high schools. You know, actually Yellow County Office of Ed also runs Dan Jacobs High School, the high school um, in the juvenile detention center. So I was doing some work in there. And I was interested because actually when you're a Latino man uh, coming to work with uh, a lot of Latino boys, you have uh, students and parents and teachers really excited about this, that there's this kind of discourse that awaits you that, you know, you'll be this great example, this role model that will help them do well. Um, but that discourse actually also comes from uh, police officers and probation officers also thinking that, you know, what these boys need is a good role model to get them in line and, and do well in schools. Um, and that, you know, I felt like I wanted to research that a little bit. I wanted, I wanted to study, you know, what are the ideological implications of training quote unquote successful Latino men is the role models to quote unquote unsuccessful or struggling Latino boys. Um, and what's that have to do with race, class, gender, and sexuality in schools? So when I got back to uh, graduate school, that was kind of animating my, my research interests. Um, you know, how do uh, Latino men and Latino boys relate to each other at schools. Yeah. Uh, one thing that kind of stands out to me about you in particular and your research, um, did you ever get any uh, hesitation for people to be open with you or something of like that due to your surname uh, being Singh? Like, was there was there almost like a, mm, I don't know if you're really Latino. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a good question. Um, you know, I joke with people, especially now that I'm in the Chicanx Studies Department. Uh, my last name, which is Singh, um, which is a very common surname um, in South Asia for Sikh people, uh, folks from the Punjabi region. Um, people often ask, oh, are, are you half Indian? Or I know you identify as Latino. Um, how do you get your last name? And actually, um, it's kind of an interesting history. And actually, when I say interesting, you know, I tell my students, stop using the word interesting. So um, when, I, when I say interesting, I mean uh, colonial racist. <laughs> but <laughs> in, in the early uh, 20th century, um, after the United States had uh, been um, prohibiting um, Asian agricultural workers from Japan and, and China from coming to work in California fields, there was briefly a guest worker program um, set up with India that brought uh, almost 100% um, Indian, Indian men, mostly from the Punjab region of India, to come work in the California fields. Um, they did not want these folks to settle. They were only bringing men, not bringing families, uh, literally just for their labor. Um, and because at that time, California had anti-miscegenation laws, um, you know, whites and non-whites could not uh, marry in California. There's actually this history at uh, this moment in time where um, Punjabi men and Mexican women in the California fields were intermarried. 
Um, there's actually a few academic books on it. And actually, this is not what I study in academia. And people always say, oh, you know, you should look into that history, you know, given your, your family lineage. I'm, I'm sure that would be fascinating to study, but not what I study. But um, my family is interested in that, that there were these intermarriages. Um, so my great-grandfather was from India, and my great-grandmother was from Sonora, Mexico. Um, so my, my grandfather uh, was half Indian, half Mexican. Um, and his wife, my grandma, is from Jalisco, Mexico. Uh, my mom is Mexican-American, so I, I generally identify um, also culturally as just uh, Mexican-American Chicano, yeah, but the last name just passed down. Um, so folks, folks always note that, um, something that I, I too, I'm sure I would note seeing someone named Michael Singh uh, in the Chicanx Studies Department. Although interestingly, interestingly enough, when I've come to the department uh, here at Hart Hall, people actually ask me, oh, are you related to a, a, a George Singh? That there was uh, someone decades earlier who was inter integral in helping establish uh, the Chicanx Studies Department. And he was also from that history and his last name was Singh. Wow. So I, I have not met this George Singh, but it's interesting that there was another Mexican-American Singh who um, was involved in the department at some time. Yeah. Um, you're currently in Oak. What kept you in the Bay Area after school? Because you're working in Davis. That's a that's quite the commute, but you seem to have a, a fondness for the area now as well. Yeah, you know, so I did my undergraduate at Berkeley, um, which is adjacent to Oakland here in the East Bay. And then throughout graduate school, um, my grad, my PhD, my doctoral training was also at UC Berkeley. Um, I lived in Oakland my, my whole time. Um, I did a lot of uh, research in Oakland, uh, activism in Oakland. I, I felt very connected to the community, really my whole adult life besides uh, the brief um, kind of gap year working in Woodland. Um, I've been here in the East Bay. Um, so I love it dearly. Um, it's, it's been home for me. I think eventually I'll move out uh, to the Woodland Sacramento area, uh, we'll see uh, where. But actually, because of COVID, um, I have not had to make the commute yet. So I think coming <laughs> into this quarter, um, you know, uh, fall 2021 is going to be my first time uh, commuting, um, doing that counter commute out to Davis. And I know a lot of colleagues do commute uh, from the East Bay, but I imagine sometime here, um, my partner and I will probably move uh, to the to the Davis area. Back to Woodland. It's gonna. It's just and, always gonna bring and, you back. And people ask me, "Are you gonna come back to Woodland?" And I thought, "Oh man, I don't know. I really love Woodland. I'd love to, you know, do some work in Woodland, do research in Woodland. Uh, my parents are there. Uh, my sister and brother, brother-in-law, and my nephews are in Woodland. Uh, my grandpa. A lot of my family's in Woodland. I don't know if I'm quite ready to move back to Woodland. We'll we'll see. Uh, but I, I love it dearly. But I'm you know now that I've been living in cities, I'm I'm a bit more attracted to moving back to Sacramento. So we'll see. I get that. I I say as one as I'm one small town over. <laughs> this is something that Woodlanders can say to one another. If anyone else badmouths Woodland, we say, "Hey, it's not too bad at all." <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's definitely changed a lot since I moved out maybe ten years ago or something. It's, it's a nice small town. I, I like it a lot. I love Main Street. I love going to the Blue Note Brewery and you know eating taqueria Guadalajara. Um, yeah, my hometown. You get me. We should hang out and have tacos at Quad. <laughs> um, I want to talk about your research, of course. Uh, it, the the primary thing is, of course, um, Latino male mentors and how they. It, like I read your paper, role models without guarantees. Uh, which the focus on like I read through it like we said before we start recording I am a bit of a layman when it comes to some of the terminology I had to look some stuff up 
But after reading through it, what I got out of it is that there seems to be, seems to be a double-edged sword uh, of representation and the additional like potential burdens that that comes with. But the answer seems to be sort of a fluidity in how one presents themselves. It, did I misinterpret this whole thing? Oh, no, no that's, that's, that's great. Um, yeah, that, that's a good, and academic journals uh, is full of jargon. I, I've been working on uh, some more popular press writings and just trying to purge my writing of, of jargon. Uh, but yeah, you hit the nail on the head there and I can maybe uh, take, take a step back. So yeah, so I, I study um, Latino men and boys, they're Latino male educators. And I'm an ethnographer, um, so my my dissertation research was, um, you know, out out in schools, in community, among my participants um, as a Latino man myself, uh, former mentor, former student, um, learning with mentors and students. Um, but when you look at the educational research, a lot of school-based ethnography is looking at the identities of particularly boys of boys of color in schools that focused on punishment and push out that they are getting uh, policed and disciplined. And, you know, they, they live these lives of punishment. Um, they're labeled as bad, quote unquote, bad boys early on, which is uh, has been very much true, particularly in the 90s and 2000s, and continues today is a, is a huge problem. But emerging from that research has been um, this kind of hope to shift the narrative that, you know, we want to create programs to empower boys, to empower youth. And part of that shift is to have um, good role models, perhaps someone like me, who's done well and can tell them how to navigate schools. And I, I liked what you you mentioned. Um, it's a bit of a double-edged sword because on the one hand, that sounds great. And I love working with boys. It's um, It's been one of my passions as an educator. So I love working with youth. So perhaps we have similar life experiences. We know what it's like to be stereotyped or typecast, or you know, I can somehow connect with you uh, better than maybe other educators connect with you. However, uh, folks that are kind of creating this policy often come uh, come to it with a deficit perspective. It actually, you know, even though systematically we can understand that racism is a structural phenomenon in schools, um, that students are, you know, it's actively happening to them. They are being policed, they are being pushed out. That sometimes when we frame the, the um, what a role model or a mentor would do is not necessarily help them navigate those structures um, or tear down those structures, but how to almost fix them as if the boys are the problem. That you know, oh, you know, there's nothing wrong with our school system. It's actually the boys that are acting out. If we can get a successful example in here, they can tell them, hey, you know, why are you late all the time? Or don't talk back to teachers. Or like, boy, you you are really, you know, have horrible homework habits. So I'm going to teach you how to how to do this. Uh, rather than looking at the underlying structural issues uh, of, ra of racism in schools, um, so that's that's a bit about what my what my research looks at. Is you know in, in my um, dissertation work, I was working with a Latino male mentorship program. That's looking at the ways that they navigate kind of being placed as mentors in schools to quote unquote fix troubled, struggling Latino boys, and how they um, kind of negotiated this odd tension of being. Uh, good role models, um, even while, while at the same time not necessarily um, viewing their students as damaged, as, as broken, as um, you know, in need of fixing. Um, so, a, a bit about that's a, a bit about my work there. Uh, one of the videos I watched doing research for this was uh, something recently done with, I believe it was the School of Education, their brown bag series, in which you kind of gave a talk uh, summing up these two uh, mentors who were working this program. 
And when they were asked about like the effectiveness of what they're doing, neither one of them seemed terribly, then you won't seem to like truly believe that they were doing much in what they were like working on. Are, are you hopeful from what you've like researched and discovered that things can change, things can get better in the face of the people doing it, not totally buying it? Yeah. Well, you know, and, and it's true. They, they weren't super hopeful. And, and you know, if you ask any educator on, on a certain day, you know that your power is, is limited. But, you know, on the one hand, never underestimate how much an individual educator can change the life of a student. And I think a lot of us have stories of, and, you know, this one person that believed in us or this one person that gave us a little extra time um, that helped us out. And you see these success stories and actually funders and philanthropists love these success stories of this kind of diamond in the rough, this student that made it out, you know, despite all odds. And maybe there was, you know, Mr. Sanchez out there that believed in him and guided him along the way. So there, there is hope there. But um, a lot of my research participants and perhaps even me, too, it felt, you know, in many ways, I, I'm a very small band-aid solution to a larger problem. And, and I think what, the, what a lot of my participants articulate is I don't love being positioned as this superhero educator, you know, male mentor that is going to save everyone because that is outside my grasp. You know, people love to put me on a poster and say, you know, we're recruiting more Latino men, more Black men into the classroom to help, you know, with our struggling Latino boys with Black male students. Um, and I think some of the cynicism comes is, you know what, I, I can, you know, be a little bit more culturally responsive, I can um, pay attention to the student, I can relate to the student more than maybe other educators, but there are fundamental things in our society that are preventing them to, that are preventing boys of color from succeeding beyond simply not having a, a good example in the classroom. Um, sometimes you can find like, you know, we have this narrative of, you know, these students, you know, didn't have a father figure at home, male educators will be that father figure. And actually, you know, oftentimes that's not the case. Sometimes you have <laughs> folks coming from, you know, loving, caring households and their, their issues, structural societal issues that are preventing them um, from succeeding. But I think um, educator uh, funders or philanthropists like those narratives because it makes it seem like you've created this quick innovative fix that's going to fix everything without necessarily tearing everything down and oftentimes um, some of my participants and me included are uh, the way we understand and, and frame the problem it's more uh, it's more than just adding a superhero type educator like me to just enter in and, and change everything and the the book you're working on it's, it's interesting to steal your word, uh, that you said the phrase, a good example, because your book you're working on is tentatively titled Un bien ejemplo. Ejemplo. Oh my God, I have it phonetically written out ahead of me. I can't do it. Ejemplo. Um, I had it just in case I flubbed it anyway. Um, And uh, how has the whole book process been for you? And I I, I would imagine the book is an expansion on, you know, everything you've researched thus far. Yeah, so I'm currently... um... Hopefully, you know, hopefully finishing a, a full draft pretty soon of a, a book project that I call tentatively, you know, we'll see what the end title will be, but which means like a good example, um, you know, race, education, and the intersectional politics of mentoring Latino boys. Um, yeah, you know, it, it's, it's been fun. I, you know, you, you mentioned reading, reading my article, um, and I, I really like that article. It's in American Educational Research Journal, which is, you know, a top journal in the, in the field of ed. Uh, but what I really like about writing a book is it really pushes you to um, just release all that jargon and, and forget about that jargon 
Um, I'm, I'm about done with a full draft of it. Um, I'm working with the press. I mean, I think I'll end up with them, but maybe I won't mention them uh, for now, but I'm working with a press that's not an ed school press. Sometimes there's um, like Teachers College Press in Columbia or Harvard Educational Press. This is a university press that lends itself more to humanities and social sciences, uh, which I love now being in, in a place like Chiganic Studies, um, but it's really pushed me to, um, uh, actually it really pushed me, but also uh, freed me to stop using such jargony language. I think in, uh, education is more of, um, at least tries to be a little bit more traditional social science research when you're publishing research. Uh, you're doing just that. You are publishing research and you use research uh, terminology. And with, with um, the affordances of a book, as you're not, not you're, you know, this is based on research, but you actually get to tell the story of your, um, of your site, of your participants, the stories that animate their lives and they animate the, the theories that you're finding in the work. Um, so it's been really, it's been really great. Um, and it's, um, it's a long process. So hopefully I'll, I'll have a full draft done here I'll get it out for review and um, hopefully around my third year, uh, it, it can I can get it out. Um, but yeah, I, I've been enjoying it. I've been enjoying it. Stay tuned. <laughs> um, this may appear in your book uh, or, you know, anywhere else, of course. What has surprised you uh, about your research over the years? Like, is there a story or an interaction or something that uh, sub subverted what you expected the day to be or the class to be or the student to be or something? I mean, the, there's all kind. You know, the book is is filled with a lot of stories that really um, animate kind of. But what, what I'm saying, I'm trying to think if there's like a phenomenal, a phenomenal one. I mean, I know I'm forgetting that, and I have so many like blown around my mind. But one that um, that kind of gets to the point of we, um, you know, Latino men or Black men don't need to be positioned as superhero educators in the classroom. That can in some ways be problematic. Is a story. Um, so I'm I'm in a middle school classroom, um, you know, during, during the research, and we're watching. It's a it's a rainy day, and we're gonna watch the film Coach Carter, which I remember actually watching. It's this MTV um, Films production, I think 2005, um, of the real life story of Coach Ken Carter, who was uh, the Richmond High School over here in the Bay Area, um, the Richmond High School basketball coach who locked and we had this star undefeated basketball team, but locked down, um, locked them out of their gym and canceled games until the team could get their grades up. Um, and I remember is a, is a kid when we'd have substitutes, sometimes we'd put on the movie coach Carter and be a fun, a fun film to watch. Um, but in, in this kind of vignette that I, I give in the book, you know, we're in the classroom and, and we're watching it and I hadn't seen the film in a while and you really watch it in Samuel Jackson plays Coach Carter. But when you look at the boys, you know, before Coach Carter enters their lives, they are, you know, violent, they are struggling, they're just, you know, traumatized by their, their circumstance, they're um, unmotivated and disorganized, you know, this is a team that's starting fights with one another, you know, they're, 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 they just feel like lost and hopeless. And all of a sudden enter uh, Coach Ken Carter, who's just the epitome of masculine respectability, he's um, strong, you know, authentically rugged, you know, a student tries to hit him and he like subdues the student real easy, proving that he's like a real tough man. But he also, you know, is the successful businessman, wears a suit, says yes, sir, no, sir. Um, and just thoroughly disciplines, you know, this, this basketball team through the fundamentals and kind of, you know, gets, the, gets them into shape. And it's this, you know, 
feel good story at the end. You know, they, they do well. I, they nearly win this big tournament or this championship. Um, and then the film, the film was over and we're, we're talking in the classroom and some of the kids, kids come up to me and the mentor and they say, you know, hello, sir. How are you doing, sir? Kind of like joking, like, oh, are, are you our co coach Carter? Or, you know, pretend like they're going to, you know, shadow box us. Like, are you going to subdue me? And we laughed and joked about it. And they, you know, we, you know, everyone said how inspirational it was. But in, anyways, uh, when you think about that story, you know, if you followed up the lives of the students, you know, perhaps some lives were minimally changed um not you know not greatly the film leads us to believe that like everyone's life was turned around though if, if you do some you know bit of background uh, on some of the players not too much of their life circumstance changed um what we really get though is that students were disorganized uh, unproductive and this strong role model figure um got them how to act right and I think that, uh, and then I, I was talking to the mentor after and said, yeah, actually after watching that movie, you know, I'd seen it a million times as a kid. It feels like I have a lot of pressure here. You know, he's this young 23, 23 year old mentor in a school. And he says like, you know, this, I kind of feel like a lot of pressure. Like I can't be coach Carter. And it's like, no kidding. You're like this, this larger than life persona Samuel L. Jackson plays. Um, but really, you know, with, with, as a, you know, as a social scientist, when I see that film and I see, you know, the, um, the conditions in which they portray Richmond, you know, the problem is not that students don't have this male figure to just get them to navigate the world. The problem is the world is created, um, you know, this context in which students are not doing well and, you know, having one individual coach is not going to change that. Um, perhaps maybe for one or two students, but uh, not for the community. So yeah, there's a little story uh, that I have there. And I, I realize that you are entering into a completely different realm than the Richmond painted in that film <laughs> or like the school in uh, Stand and Deliver, for example. Oh, yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, that, that movie I was been thinking about for some reason. It just popped up on one of the many streaming services. And I was like, oh, I remember enjoying that as a kid. Now I want to watch it through that lens that you just discussed. Oh, you know, and that's a great one. And actually, I, I, I was teaching a class last year and we talked about the movie Stand and Deliver. Some students had a project where they, they watched it and presented on it. And as much as that's like an inspiring story, you know, Jaime Escalante is this Latino man who's a, a teacher who reaches this unreachable class and they all do amazing on, you know, the AP calculus test or something like that um, And he is this great teacher and while it feels good you know i forget, I forget it was somewhere in east la it might have been garfield high school but if you look at you know east la and garfield high school now it's not like oh my gosh that one teacher like inequality in LA, LA, lausd is like, like shifted actually you know in west la you got white affluent families lying about their address to get to garfield high school because it's so great you know it's, it's like obviously obviously not you know that the social problems that exist in los angeles the inequalities that list that exist in los angeles and that translate into their schools, um, do not go away with one superhero teacher. But well, we don't love you know, watching films on political economy and the reasons why uh, we have unequal public schools. We like films where there's a superhero teacher from the community who for some reason changed everything. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. <laughs> with uh, the whole superhero teacher mentality in mind or you know, something like that, this question is worded poorly. Uh, how how has like your research impacted how you teach? Like, do you feel like you have to present yourself in a certain way after doing all the research you've done, or are you trying to like push back against that? Like, how has it affected you personally now that you yourself are an educator? 
even though, like I oh, said yeah. earlier, in a completely different realm than your stand and mm-hmm. delivers, your coach cards, yeah, et cetera. That, that's, that's a good example. Something that, you know, and I give workshops to, to educators um, as well. And, you know, I guess I, I teach at the college level too, but especially when, when I'm with young people, um, you know, K-12, the important thing to remember is um, one, is one um, although, you know, you can say you're expiring, you're a good example, you know, never do you want to be positioned as embodying what your students are lacking. I'm very aware of that, that oftentimes there's a lot of mechanisms that push you to show like, oh, you know, I did well because, you know, I do this, I do that, and you you don't do this. And actually students have amazing amount of knowledge, amazing amount of, um, of know-how, of, of assets that they bring to the classroom. And never as an educator do you want to highlight, you don't have something, and I do have something. Here's how you, here's how you act like me. Um, so, I mean, I guess that, that's one with my research. Yeah, another um, that I think is really important is oftentimes, particularly when we're talking about um, kind of superhero men of color educators, um, built into that image is often that they're cisgender, that they're straight, uh, that they can be patriarchal in a certain way. And oftentimes that discourse um, asks that of, of, of educators. I felt like it's asked that of me that, you know, in part, how you earn respect of your students as you embody a very traditional masculinity, you know how to control the room with your voice. You you know gain respect because you're kind of manly. I, I remember working in the Yellow County Office of Education. And I was um, I'm I'm not to brag, but I'm pretty good at handball. <laughs> I used to play handball with students, um, and and that was and that was fun. And I I and actually in many I I always wish that I made sure. And actually, I did to some extent, but. That, that wasn't, you know, the only way that I connected with students. But, you know, sure, you can connect with athletic students or maybe, in, you know, traditional boys that are interested in, in, in athleticism. Um, but you want to connect with everyone. Um, you don't want to normalize that, oh, the successful manhood, you know, you're, you're cisgender, you're straight, you're athletic, you know, all these things that make up um, dominant or hegemonic notions of masculinity. Um, that that's not necessarily what you want to perform. You know, there's a lot of research that, that shows that um, teachers, but particularly um, straight men who are teachers, can op- operate as kind of these systems of surveilling proper masculinity in students. And I and when I think about it, you know, I, you don't have a ton of uh, I didn't at least ha- have a lot of men of color um, teachers in high school, but every now and again I I would, and some were awesome, and some very much built confining limited notions of masculinity in my mind. And when I was with him, I wanted to be a little tougher, a little bit more traditional of a man. Um, so doing my research has really uh, pushed me as an educator to make sure that I can uh, deconstruct identity in the classroom, that I'm not necessarily normalizing dominant notions of identity. Um, you know, I, I try to bring all kinds of aspects of me um, to the classroom and then bring aspects of other folks to the classroom if, if it's, you know, if I have, whether it's, guest lectures or, you know, incorporating different types of readings. I want to make sure that um, I can, you know, create space for all different kinds of identities in my classroom. Very cool. Uh, that was all I had for, for our chat today. Is there anything else you wanted to touch on or discuss? Or I don't know. I feel I listen to a lot of podcasts where it's somebody's looking to promote something. Uh, is <laughs> I know the book's not out yet, but is there anything that you would like to, you know, say on our way out here? No, I, I don't have a ton, um, you know, but, but coming later, but um, no, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm happy to be on this podcast. I'm happy to be contributing to, you know, the wonderfulness that is Hart Hall. I feel like this past year, um, 
you know, physically I, I've been absent from UC Davis, but I feel like I haven't gotten incorporate as much as I would into the Hart Hall community. So I'm, I'm really happy, grateful for you for giving me this opportunity. So right. um, I've been enjoying listening to these podcasts and yeah, thanks for inviting me. Of course. Thank you for being on. Production.